Hello, my name's Tony Kemp. Welcome to the series Voices from Immediate Care. This is a series produced by the British Association for Immediate Care, where we talk to different individuals who have involvement in pre-hospital care. Some of the names are extremely well known, others maybe not quite so well known, but they all represent the history of immediate care. Today we're talking to Dr Judith Fisher, a founding member of the British Association for Immediate Care. She started life as a general practitioner. She later morphed into emergency medicine. But alongside that, she found time to be the chair of the association, to be a founding member of the Resuscitation Council, and also of what was then the Club of Minds that later became the World Association for Disaster and Emergency Medicine. Judith, can we just start by you explaining how you first became interested in pre-hospital care? When I was a medical student, I enjoyed going into A&E, which was casualty then, mm. and I'd chat to the paramedics. Well, they weren't paramedics, they were ambulance mm. drivers, first aid training, and a driving license, basically. And I said I was really interested in what the ambulance service did, because they linked the community and the hospital. And he said, why don't you come out with us? So I got into the habit of going out with the Camden crew, and thought, you know, there's such a gap here where doctors could do things that they couldn't do. Yeah. So that spurred my interest initially. And perhaps if we even go back further, when I was about 16, I'd been out to dinner and coming back over the hills in Northumberland from a little village called Blancheland, we came across a motorcyclist who'd come off his bike. It made me feel really incompetent. And that's the first time I thought about pre-hospital care. So that, I think, was why I went with the ambulance service. And then when I went into practice, no, when we went into the army, because my husband joined the army on one of these bribes when national service had just finished yes. and they pay for you for two years, your last two years of medical school, if you joined the army for five years. And there was some horrendous accidents there. And I asked the CEO if I could teach basic first aid and basic life support. And again, there was that gap, the pre-hospital care gap. So I've always been interested in, in that lacuna between the hospital and the community so as soon as I left the army with my husband we were in practice in Hampshire I became a clinical assistant at Southampton General Hospital yeah and while I was there was the meeting at the Middlesex Hospital to set up basics in 1977. I went to that meeting with Mike Knowles with whom who was an anaesthetist there, and he was the one that said, why don't we call it BASICS, British Association of Immediate Care Schemes? Okay. So I suppose I've been involved with BASICS from the beginning. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly our records show that. You're, 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 you're right there at the beginning. So you knew Ken Easton. You knew him well? I knew him very well. I stayed with him a couple of times, and when I was going to Harrogate, amazingly being given a fellowship from the College of GPs, which mainly was due to sort of basics work, I presume. So it was a, a fellowship for basics, not me. I stayed with Ken and he drove me over and came to the ceremony and I stayed with him two or three other times. I just had a very soft spot for him. Hey, what sort of man was he? I mean, the impression is he, he was very passionate, very driven, but also there was a, 
a side to him that was immensely caring. I mean, he, he quotes the Good Samaritan and things like this. There, there was something about him. He that, was a deeply religious man, and he didn't push his religion at you. He just practiced it. And he cared yeah. about everybody. And a thing that I always remember was on the corridor to his guest room, just walking down from the kitchen, was that poem about there's no indispensable man the one yeah. where you put your hand in the back of the water. And he said that was his philosophy. He wasn't going to get big-headed because the water was still when he took his hand out. I dug out two letters from Ken. And they're just so lovely. One was thanking me when we did a dinner when he retired. And one was thanking me for being a member of his... Um, I, oh, I know, I, I wrote a book on immediate care. And I dedicated it to him. And he sent me such a lovely letter. And he always encouraged and thanked everybody he was so meticulous he was just he was just very special very warm very he just cared for his community and i think the story which i think is true about him locking all the doctors into a room when he wanted to set up an immediate care scheme and not letting them go till they agreed was just typical ken he had a driving but compassionate approach to it and he wanted everyone to think about pre-hospital care. I mean, he was, he was involved in an awful lot of lobbying, wasn't he, across the... Oh, absolutely. He was very friendly with Baroness Masham. And Jack Ashley, who he introduced me to, I must have been before a meeting, I think we had a lunch or something, um, chaired the All-Party Disablement Committee, I think. I'm, I'm not good at committees. Yeah. Uh, and he was very supportive. I think people like that um, and Baroness Masham helped him get immediate care established. And then we went on being part of one of, one of the subcommittees. Basics was sort of there. I think we were resented initially by the Casualty Surgeons Association, but then they came to realize we weren't really a threat because we were looking at what happened before you got to casualty. Yeah. I mean, I Peter London, although he supported us, you know, again, he was a very committed doctor. And I remember Simon Davis worked with him as a nurse and, and was just so impressed with how committed he was. Simon probably pushed nursing into basics, you know, and became very involved with us with the crowd doctors course. And I think what is one of the things that are interesting about basics is the things it spawned. Um, I was chairman when they had the Hillsborough inquiry, so I gave some evidence to that. And Miles Gibson then asked me to help him set up a crowd doctors course, which we did. Um, that's very much a basics event that took off nationally. And then obviously the Public Education Liaison Committee, which we were asked by the ambulance service to establish. I've actually, something I did keep was the first copy of the minutes. Um, it was the inaugural meeting of the Public Education Liaison Committee of the British Association for Immediate Care. What a mouthful. In August 1981. And so there was Peter Baskin. Douglas Chamberlain, Rodney Herbert, Roger Sleep, David Siderman. And we all agreed we should set up public education and invite one or two other people, like people from the ambulance service. But Douglas made the point, because he was always the most far-seeing of us all, that this should not be a subcommittee of one association. It should be a totally separate organisation that in in encapsulated everybody else was interested in pre-hospital care. That's why we first became the Resuscitation Council and then went to Europe and helped spawn the European Resuscitation yeah. Council, then combined with the American Heart Association. I felt so strongly about 
getting something done in the community before people. I mean, it was crazy that people were dying when something very simple needed doing. Yes, absolutely. And so many people believed that it would be dangerous to teach the public CPR. Because, I mean, you, you, you were, have been responsible for introducing thrombolysis, had a lot to do with public defibrillation and, and introduction of defibrillation to the ambulance service. I think that was inspired by Pete, uh, Peter Basket and Douglas. We both believe strongly that the ambulance mm. the public could do so much more than they're allowed to do. I mean, Peter and his Entonox, the thought of people in the ambulance service giving pain relief was a sort of anathema then. And Douglas had already started in 1989 um, a CPR scheme. I, I, did six months GP locum in Brighton while my husband was working at the Brighton Hospital before Douglas. And then when Douglas came, you just saw the whole change in the community. He, like Ken, was an inspiration. So I wasn't original. I just saw people I admired and tried to follow their philosophy. And, and in doing that, you also stayed very much as a doctor on the road. I presume that, that included things like some of the, the IRA bombings of London and... Oh, yes. Yes, I went to several of those. Um, because if you remember, and I'm, I'm no good at dates, but I can give them to you later, perhaps. Virginia Bottomley wanted a GP to work in A&E yes. to try and build bridges. And because I knew the London Hospital from doing pre-hospital care and the bombs, I applied for that job and was lucky enough to get it. Um, and so I was in the basics team, but also in the London team towards the end of the bombing. And you got to the stage where you'd hear a bomb and the glass would shatter and the nurses would come in or other people would come in without even being called. It was sort of yes. routine. And that really spurred my interest in hospital and disaster planning, which is why I was invited to go to America after 9-11. I think I was a bit, I don't know, not emotionally swayed by what was going on, but I think disaster planning was a natural follow-on from teaching the public how to do things, to get that whole chain that Laird I talked about, chain of survival, going on a larger scale. So did, you, did you know Osmond Laird Oh, very, I say very well. For the three or four years after he came, I obviously was very moved by his presentation at Brighton, which was, I think, was 1981. I'd met him once or twice before then. He then invited me out to see the factory and we were both at a meeting in Copenhagen just before he died where I spent a long time talking to him about how to push resuscitation. He then offered to fund me to go to America with two Australians who were thinking of setting up a resuscitation council to see how it was done over there. So I had an amazing experience flying to Seattle and then crossing America and landing up in New York. So Seattle presumably was the King County... Um... Yes, Leonard Cobb and Co. Yes. Amazing names, aren't they? Oh, aren't they just all these people? And then, um, I can't remember all the people I meant, but we, we went to Kansas. And the Kansas City Royals was sponsored by, I think it was the Mariam Shrug Company, where they were teaching math CPR. That was the first time I'd seen literally yeah. hundreds of people being taught. It was amazing. Um, and I thought, we can do this. And Laird, I was very cunning, I think, to take enthusiasts to America so that we'd come home inspired by that and try and nag people to set it up over here, which eventually we did. 
Yeah, that, that's certainly a trait. I mean, it's Santora picked that up as well. You take enthusiasts, show them what's possible, and yes. then set them loose. Yeah. I think lots of things have left me in old age, but not my enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever meet Peter Saffer? Oh, yes. I went to the first meeting of the World Association in 1979. Well, it was the second meeting, sorry. It was the Club of Mainz then. Yes. And I met Rudolf Fry and Peter Saffer, both of whom were more influential people in my life. Peter then invited me out to Pittsburgh and I went to the Resuscitation Research Centre. Peter Saffer, just another inspirational guy. And I can remember lecturing with him in Israel and he was going by bus to Egypt because that's the only way he could get there. He didn't mind putting a backpack on his back and just going through all sorts of conditions. It was amazing. So lucky to meet these giants. I met Peter a couple of years before he died. He came over, I was living in Stavanger and oh, right. he came over. And even at that point where his health wasn't the best, he was totally inspirational. Isn't it? Just Very amazing. open gentleman. Um, you know, he'd sit and talk. He, he didn't talk down to you. Oh, uh, no. No, no, no. He involved you. And, and, and you came out uh, with a belief that you could change things. Yes. And I, I think... Going, his friendship with Tor Laerdal, with Asmund Laerdal first and then with Tor, did a phenomenal amount for resuscitation. And I can remember going to a meeting, you were probably there, where Laerdal was celebrating Resusiani, I think. And I came over with Tony Redmond and stayed there. Um, all of them were just so inspiring. When yeah. you look back at your pre-hospital career, the, the, the time you were actually on the road doing the job, right? What, what sort of things stand out in your mind as the things that kept you going, the things that, that uh, helped you stay sane, if you like, as, as we would encounter you know, terrible sights, early death, all sorts of, of you know, tribulation that normally would knock people off their feet? Two things, I think. One was that you were needed and therefore you wanted to be there. But the other was the terrible fear on your way to an accident was totally relieved when you started doing things. And especially if someone survived and you got that feeling that maybe I have contributed. And that's like a performer going on stage. It's awful, but you need the accolade of success every so often. And I think the other thing was that feeling of being part of a team. You'd arrive at an accident often after the ambulance service, but you just slot into place and you've had every faith in the guy, usually one of the guys there or ladies there, you would know and you knew what they were doing and you'd just fit in and play your part. Sometimes, and certainly later when paramedic training was going on, it was almost like being the conductor of the orchestra. You weren't needed to do things, but you were needed to help them to know what to do. And the typical example, I think, was that Initially, the paramedic learned how to deal with one patient and you get to an event where there were four patients and you needed to say, look, restore that airway, but now go and look at the other three and then you can come back to this guy. The commonest mistake trainee doctors made, I found, even early on training in Southampton, was you'd go to a mass casualty or often an exercise and they'd focus on the one patient they found who was really ill and ignore the rest. And getting people to manage a group of casualties was a big step, having been taught one-to-one -one throughout their whole career. Often talking to relatives is as important as dealing with the patient. 
And I can think of a classic example. During the ambulance strike, a guy had driven into a Belisha beacon and it had gone through the front of the car, up through his groin, out through his chest, missing all sorts of vital things. And I was, we got him under control and I was talking to his wife and she said, he must be dead. And I said, he's not, he's surviving. He's talking to me about Chelsea Football Club. And her face lit up, she said, I believe that because he's such a Chelsea fan. But, you know, just being able to reassure somebody is medicine in itself. And then those, those times when you'd come away from the incident and, and even now when you, you have all these memories, how do you cope so that they don't overwhelm you at times? I mean, there, there are times certainly where sometimes multiple memories seem to flood back on the, on the back of one, one incident. Certain things will bring them back because it's sensations, it's smells, it's feelings. The worst thing about Clapham train crash in 89, I think it was, was knowing you were walking over dead bodies to get to the living. And the feeling, if, you, if I tread on somebody's foot by accident on the beach or yeah. something, the whole thing comes rushing back. It's awful. Yeah. But it's getting less and less. And I think, although it's arrogant, I've got one or two letters that patients have sent me saying thank you. And if I'm feeling really down, I'll just look at those and think, try and remember the positives. That does sound arrogant, doesn't it? But no, it doesn't. It, it, yeah. it's, I think it's about grounding yourself in, in where that, that reality for us is. And that yeah. reality, as you said earlier, is about not only needing to, to, to be able to help, but actually being useful when you get there. Yes. What do you think was probably the, the greatest red elephant we ever dealt with in pre-hospital care in terms of interventions or pieces of kit that were, were going to be the world changer and then fizzled and died? I think fluid resuscitation with colloids was a pretty big mistake, but we thought it was right at the time and yes. we contributed to the research. Yes. Um, staying and playing, we thought because you could do something, you did it rather than thinking... Is this going to save time and life? And if you had words of wisdom for, for oh. young doctors and nurses and paramedics coming in today to immediate care, what do you think you'd offer them? What advice? Hmm. It, Remember, you're not God. You're part of a team. Ask other people's opinions. It's, it's rather like at a... I mean, the classic one is when you want to stop resuscitation, always make sure you've asked everybody if they agree with you that it's not worth going on. You have got to be a team member, you're not God. So this was Tony Kemp on behalf of the British Association for Immediate Care, chatting to Dr. Judith Fisher. Judith, thank you so much for coming along, giving some of your personal history and insights into the history of immediate care and of the association. Thank you.